Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. This weekend, Welsh Labour meet for their annual conference in Llandidno, the dominant force in Welsh politics, but due to the nature of Senedd politics, they are always partly reliant on another party in order to govern. Today we go back in time to 2007, long before the days of the cooperation agreement, Welsh Labour members met to ratify the terms of the One Wales Agreement. Was this the defining moment in our politics in Wales? A defining moment for Welsh Labour and Plaid Cymru? Or was it simply an argument in a room? Joining us to discuss this and more is Dr Di Moon, Senior Lecturer in Politics, Languages and International Studies at the University of Bath. Hello Di, how are you? Hi, good, thank you. Thanks for having me back. Well, pleasure, pleasure as always. But Di, a lot of red water has flowed under the bridge since uh, 2007. Can you please roll back the clock a bit and paint a picture of where we were in those days? Obviously, we just had elections in Scotland too, and the SNP were looking to form the government, their government for the first time. You know, Tony Blair was still prime minister, and no one had ever even considered putting words Britain and exit together to make Brexit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we need to see uh, 2007 in Wales in terms of the UK as a whole. Uh, the SNP uh, becoming a minority government, the transition from the SDLP UUP the so-called moderates in Northern Ireland into this world of the DUP and Sinn Féin as the two major parties. And in Wales, two elements. First of all, ultimately, Plaid Cymru, the fearsome Welsh nationalists for the sort of the British politics, you know, entering into government. But more than that, almost the existential crisis for the Labour Party in Wales, that it might possibly lose power, (laughs) which is part of the story, of course, which explains how we end up um, with the One Wales Agreement. Yeah, I mean, obviously... You'd had the very strong plight showing in 99, which I think still loomed large over Labour. And then obviously over this 2007 result in which Labour hadn't done very well. But we'll go back a bit to to 99, you know, the story that Peter Hayne had to phone Tony Blair to uh, uh, to, to admit to losing the Ronda alongside Isloan and Tlanetli. What kind of political conditions were around in that late 90s, early 2000s period? One of the things which I think is interesting in terms of devolution is almost this expectation uh, that the way that we'd set up the National Assembly for Wales was meant to not really rock the boat so much and underpinning all of this. One of the ways to sell devolution within the Labour Party, and remember, because of the one-party dominance, uh, which is the legacy of Welsh politics, debates within the Welsh Labour Party often, if not most of the time, become more important than debates between uh, political parties, was, look, a less proportional system okay it's it'll it will keep labor party dominance but you've got to throw this in to kind of bring along the liberal democrats and plaid cymru so the result in 1999 which again it's so funny as you said this in my mind it's that line where paul flynn relates it in uh, dragons led by poodles you know tony i've lost the ronda this sort of fateful phone call the other fateful line from that one is allegedly according to lance price the spin doctor's diary was uh, Tony Blair shouting at the TV, uh, swearing about the Welsh, uh, which he then had to edit in his book to remove after some uh, annoyance caused by it. But it's a shock, 1999, right? Because it is actually this sort of shaking in which, you know, Welsh Labour, or as it was then, either Labour Party in Wales or Wales Labour, the full rebranding hasn't happened at that point. They don't gain their majority. They First of all, you have the minority government, which already... You know, will end up collapsing. It leads into the coalition of the Liberal Democrats. Of course, even before that, you've got Rodri Morgan. It, it's a sort of the, the sort of control freakery. It's it's a fascinating period for that sort of rocky start for the Labour Party. But it settles down fairly 
earlier, I would argue, into a general notion of, okay, it was a bit rocky, but we know how this is going to work. Welsh Labour remained the dominant party, with the Liberal Democrats always there, just in case we need them. Okay, there's a period actually where they're able to rule uh, as a, a kind of majority party, although they start to lose seats throughout this. But there's a notion that it's going to be all right. We're going to be the dominant party. Worst case scenario, the Liberals will be there. Should we ever need them? You know, that's what that's almost what their function is there to prop us up, which is sort of the thought which is going into 2007 through that, which um, obviously the result doesn't go as they want. They don't manage to get enough seats. They need to form a coalition agreement. And from the beginning, it's 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 spoken in House of Parliament, Peter Haynes saying, look, definitely not going to be an agreement with Plaid. You know, I can't speak. That's a conversation for Roger Morgan and the AMs, but I can pretty much guarantee it's not going to be with Plaid. Uh, you have a wonderful statement from um, Roger Morgan uh, in which he, talking about the difference between governing with Plaid Cymru or the Liberal Democrats, says it's a choice between the inedible and the merely unpalatable. So is that, you know, there's that notion that the Liberal Democrats might not be nice, but Plaid Cymru inedible, off the table. And that's how things are meant to be going until 17th of May. Um, the Welsh Liberal Democrat executive vote to suspend talks of Labour. Bit of a shock. Five days later, Plaid, who are in conversations about a lesser stability pact, so it's not a full coalition, they would have had no Labour seats, uh, no seats in the Labour cabinet. And they both then indicate they're going for a rainbow coalition between themselves and the Conservatives. So it would have been a green, yellow and blue coalition. And that's what I mean by that sort of existential crisis, because for the Labour Party, there's suddenly the shock that they might actually be out of power. There could be the other three uh, parties in power. And um, essentially, um, it doesn't go anywhere because in this sort of, if I might be slightly ironic, you know, classic Liberal Democrat fashion in some way, they um, there's a vote by their um, executive, which is meant to be necessary to put this recommendation forward to a conference vote. It's tied. They can't put it forward. They managed to eventually redo the vote. But by that point, Roger Morgan's already been put in as a first minister, uh, minority Labour government. Um, and at that point, it's it's gone. The other parties give up on a rainbow coalition. But also Labour gives up really on the idea of a Liberal Democrat coalition. Nobody trusts the Liberal Democrats at this point. And it's at that point they turn to Plaid Cymru for talks. Yeah, so Roger and, and Yian have begun conversations on what would become the One World Coalition, or as you know, many people would have you believe, actually people like Mark Drakeford and Adam Price working behind the scenes in order to sort of uh, make that deal work. So that sort of sets the scene for our story here when both these leaders have to go back and sell it to their respective parties, get approval. Clyde, that's relatively straightforward, as you see even, even this weekend just passed, you know, the idea of being in government for Plaid Cymru something fairly easy to sell to them. But for Labour, it was a whole other ball game, wasn't it, Di? Yeah, it was a visceral reaction within large parts of the party. The article which I wrote about this, which came out looking at sort of the specific arguments in the Welsh Labour Party, we were joking before we came on air that like, it's an, a fascinating paper, I would argue, right? I wrote it, but it's it's great copy is what I said. It's a shame no one will read it, maybe, unless they're really interested in this. But luckily, this podcast is designed for people who care about this stuff. Because if you just read what took place in the debate, not only at the conference itself, but beforehand within the media, it is visceral. It is um, bloodletting. It's 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 charges of Trotskyist entryism and uh, sort of uh, racism and, and all these sorts of like heavy terms being thrown away versus people being childish and sort of um, not grown up. 
antediluvian politics, uh, as it's described. But to understand how we get there as well, well, first of all, the thing to say is that feels a world away from where we are now. And that's quite interesting because kind of going back to context, to me, 2007 is, is the jump into the second phase of devolution. That first phase of devolution is the notion of, okay, Scotland, Wales, it's going to be Labour for Liberal Democrats, mainstream unionist parties pushing forward, blah, blah, blah. 2007, nationalist politics sort of emerge, you know, nationalist in the sense of sub-state nationalism rather than British nationalism emerge as, as sort of the theme. And what I see 2007 as, and in particular, the debate around One Wales is sort of the last great, um, should we say, bubbling forth of a, a key split within the Labour Party in Wales, within Welsh Labour, which kind of has has, has risen at certain points, uh, which is between, broadly speaking, sort of, there are different terms for this. You could call it a unionist or a British or even a materialist wing of the party versus a Welsh or devolutionist or a soft nationalist wing of the party. There are problems with all those terms, but this sort of divide the party's always had, some of it different inflections kind of erupting at this moment. But what's kind of fascinating is, is I think there's almost a cathartic moment. A lot of this rage, which is left out there, you've got to understand it if you want to understand how difficult a moment this was. And it tells you so much about the party, but it also helps to explain how we end up sort of where we are now, which is almost a settle, a settle down. We've not seen eruptions like that since. Yeah, I mean, it's too simplistic to describe it as a sort of Morganite tradition versus the sort of Murphyite tradition, you know, that kind of classic divide. Obviously, you've talked about those sort of different traditions that were sort of the bedrock of this. But what are the public-facing arguments and that, that are working away? You know, I'm sure that everyone's talking to the media in the build of this conference in the, in the in trying to provide context to the agreement. What are the sort of key battle lines that are being drawn both within the party and within the media at this time? Yeah, absolutely. Well, throughout the paper, sort of the conclusion, which I can jump to here, is there are sort of two major divisions here. Uh, on the one side, those opposed to the deal, essentially their argument is Plaid Cymru is a nationalist party and nationalism is entirely, totally um, irreconcilably divided from socialism. You can't be a nationalist and a socialist, because Welsh Labour is an internationalist party, not a nationalist party, applied a nationalist, so we can have nothing to do with them. That's the first element. And then a second element is this notion of essentially learning to cope with this new form of politics, that devolution has altered the stakes here, which is to say, there's a line which isn't in the article, but is in my PhD thesis I drew this from, which was from um, the Welsh Labour students rep, You'd know who it was if I put it in the articles anonymized, in which uh, they say that the MPs have made our bed and now they force us to lie in it. They want to tell us how to lie in it. And it is that notion of this is the reality now that coalition politics is the way forward that people are going to have to accept. But in terms of the debates within that, going back to that sort of nationalist versus um, anti-nationalist, and, and I want to foreground that because... A lot of the argument comes down that this is about devolution versus anti-devolution or pro-devolution versus devo-skeptic. And I think there's an element of that, but I think that it, it, it blurs some of what's really significant here because in terms of positions on the constitutional question, they also map themselves onto these sorts of ideological tendencies, which I would argue can be related onto views on nationalism. Some of them good faith, some of them bad faith. 
So some of the things which are being said, for example, uh, Kim Howells, I mean, if there's anyone who's clearly aligned with a sort of, well, not with a, the Welsh wing of the party, it would be Kim Howells. He's in the Western Mail, and he says uh, that the, the aspirations of the dealer at the heart of the nationalist agenda, that it will lead ultimately to separatism and independence. Uh, he says, it is ironic the very same party that for so long held at bay the separatists and cultural and political nationalists is now prepared to provide for their former enemies an assembly vehicle that transports those same nationalists to the gates of independence. So pretty heavy rhetoric there. Don Tuig MP at the time, you know, Labour have nothing in common with the nationalist separatist party. The nationalists want independence. All those things and documents accelerate that. But it's not only the MPs, because often, again, another thing here is it's the MPs versus the AMs. But there are a lot of AMs against this, and openly in the media at the time. Lynn Neagle, Karen Sinclair, Anne Jones, Irene James. And what they're saying, they talk about the lack of any binding common philosophy between the two parties, coupled with different aspirations we have for the future of Wales. They say it's very difficult to imagine how this could even work together. They also, it's, it's just fascinating looking at the time, they're saying... Uh, the notion that we could commit to campaign on a referendum on further powers, and this is their quote now, quote, even before the current new powers have had a chance to bed in is undeliverable, right? It just simply could not be done. There's a sort of catastrophe, sort of, it simply won't work together. And also there's a, a heavy pushing with this, which is there's nothing about the bread and butter issues that people care about this. So that's sort of before the conference. And this is really strong. It's irreconcilable. Nationalism cannot be mixed with socialism. And on, the next thing then is, this isn't actually going to work. We have nothing in common because of that, so it won't work. The argument against that is, well, actually, our parties, this is from support to One Wales, well, actually, our parties share quite a lot in common. The, the big name for this is, is Roger Morgan. Roger Morgan's out there sort of selling this. Um, and, and, and the shift there is to say, look, this deal gives the majority of Welsh Labour's manifesto. In fact, the elements that people seem to be declaring as sort of a nationalist plot, much of it is actually already in our manifesto. It's just bringing it forward a little bit earlier. Is that truly uh, so much to go ahead with? And the notion there is this is how it, it, this is how politics is now. Edwina Hart, another big public supporter of it, just kind of saying this is grown-up politics, it's time we grew up. She says the parties have similar ideas working together. So compare and contrast on the one side, irreconcilable, nothing in common. Versus, you know, this will be a majority deal for Labour. We're parties of similar ideas. And there's a line from Professor Kevin Morgan in, in the Western Mail. And I, I raise it because it becomes something which is raised at the conference directly. And it's a small world of Welsh media, right? So uh, one day, her life podcast being quoted on the floor of a tendentious uh, conference, uh, I'm sure. But he writes in the Western Mail about the uh, prospect of the two great progressive forces in Welsh politics coming together and attacking the sort of antediluvian politics of those in um, Welsh Labour who are viscerally opposed to any kind of link with Plaid Cymru. So before the conference, the dividing lines at the most basic, again, we cannot work for them. We have nothing in common because they're nationalists versus we're kind of parties with lots of similar ideas. They might well be nationalists, but actually this is just going to be a lot of our policies anyway. And much of what you're upset about was in the manifesto, which is doing it a bit earlier. And that's where we are heading into the conference, I'd say. For anybody well-versed in Labour Party politics and Labour Party history, the idea that you can't get on and work together with people you have nothing in common with, I mean, that's half the Labour Party. The, <laughs> the, the different political ideologies of the Labour Party, you end up working with people with massive political differences to you in the name of advancing the cause of the party and country, right? And so it does feel a bit rich that people say they can't work with people who, with whom they disagree when they probably do so 
on a daily basis in the, within the same political party. I think I think the thing to bear in mind, like where we are now is a post one Wales agreement. And in much the same way that the argument is that the minority government of the SNP sort of detoxifies the SNP because it, it demonstrates to people who might have been scared about um, what would happen that actually, do you know what, it's, it's fine. It's just a, a normal government. Although Plaid Cymru get absolutely hammered after the one Wales agreement, which is, you know, being a minority party is always a problem, uh, which they might be one of the reasons they learned their lesson with the stability agreement is not a full coalition. I think one of those elements is there's actually detoxifying because it's shown, you know, what the sky didn't fall in. But going into this agreement, it's worth keeping in mind just how deep some of this distaste and dislike is for Plaid Cymru and for Welsh nationalism as a a concept, a political movement, uh, an abstraction in some sense within large sections of the Welsh Labour Party. Because it, it would be easy to go, ah, this is just it's just rhetoric or it's just people who want to keep their own power or something like this. But there is a, there's a, that visceral hatred among some people for Welsh nationalism, which sees it linked into, and, and Richard Wynne Jones's book on the fascist party in Wales shows how unfair this is, but people linking into support for fascism, people declaring it racist, anti-English, those sorts of ideas. Um, also, a general hatred, how dare anyone claim they are the party of Wales when, you know, Labour is clearly the party of Wales. As they name themselves at one point, um, Welsh Labour, colon, the, the, re- the true party of Wales or something like that. I love it. You've got to understand that there is that sort of visceral element to it. And part of the reason I think that reading this now and rereading it before I came on here, it's so interesting and kind of almost fun to read this is it's it's not rhetoric i could imagine being this publicly spoken anymore and i think it's because of one way as we get there but that's me on a tangent i apologize no i think i think we'll, we'll we'll get into the cooperation agreement later on but definitely you can tell i think a difference in the in the rhetoric between those opposed to working with like Cymru then and now it's much less less much less passionate of vitriolic now than it would have been at the time i'm sure and um, do you, do you think that this is fundamentally the event that saw power tilt in favour of what we would now classify as Welsh Labour, the, the pro-devolution wing of the Labour Party in Wales versus those who are, whether you, you probably wouldn't call them anti-devolution, but you would probably call them uh, more gradualists in terms of their, their devolution pro- uh, process? I think gradualist is a better term. I, I prefer to devo-sceptic, which used to be the term. Because, again, if you go back to a lot of the debates and the framings around devolution, again, you can argue this is bad faith and people are just saying, not really saying what they wanted. But a lot of it has been this long debate about maturity. Okay, you know, some people saying we're a mature body, we deserve more powers. Others don't walk before you can run, you know, sort of like kind of where it's a young parliament. There's always been that notion of stepping stones there. Again, you could argue that's just an attempt to hide the fact that they just don't want to give more power away. But I think it's useful. Is this the key moment? I'm a good academic, so I'll say yes and no, which is to say what One Wales, this conference does. I don't think, well, first of all, the formal vote doesn't change anything because it's already known before it goes in the room, right? It's already a done deal. We know where this is going to go. It's support for the deal. That's absolutely clear. Literally people in the room, not a single person speaking thought that their speeches were going to alter the, the event. Everyone knew the deal was going to be go through. So the event itself is more giving a platform to have that debate, to have that argument, to let it out. So I, I would say, no, it isn't the moment insofar as it kind of just formalized what was already the case, which was this was the shift of power within the party. The very fact we're here shows that. 
But yes, it was insofar as by allowing that outlet for this argument, in some sense, it helped to depreciate that pressure point from bursting. That would be my view. It was there's something cathartic about this, the sort of like just letting this argument out, which got it all out in the open and hasn't re-emerged to the same level since. So I think it's symbolic of where we were. And I think it was probably necessary to get to where we were. But the event itself was uh, a performance. It was performative. Everybody going into it knew what was going to come out of it. In a sense, it might be said, this was for the, you know, the history books to be on the right side of history in some regards. I mean, now now we're very comfortable and familiar with the idea of Welsh Labour. Obviously, you've seen Carwin Jones fight many campaigns as leader of Welsh Labour. Same with Mark Drakeford, both front and centre, well, front and centre of any national campaigns in the UK in Wales as well. It's the Welsh Labour leader. Um, almost, not quite, but almost on parity with the UK Labour leader, whoever that is. Do you think that that means that Welsh Labour as a brand identity is is here to stay? Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the most successful brand identities in the history of British politics. It's, it's, it is the hegemonic uh, political power. It's, it's very clever. You can see how the party's name shifts over time. Uh, also recognizing that position of power, you know, it's, you've got the sort of the Labour Welsh regional body. Then you've got the Labour Party in Wales, a bit like the church in Wales, right? It's sort of like it's Labour in Wales, then it shifts to Wales Labour, then to Welsh Labour. And there's been that sort of slow, steady sort of, should we call it Welshification of the brand? And it all takes part at the same time that the party has successfully managed to embed its electoral dominance, even as it might not be still able to consistently win majorities um, within the assembly, which is realistically what's kind of not meant to happen if you have a semi-proportional electoral system. Yeah, it's it's Welsh Labour is here to stay. I mean, there are possible risks in the future, but I don't think the risks of the party have anything to do with that identity. That's not what I think the risks of the party would be. Do you think even if Keir Starmer won in the next couple of years became Prime Minister, do you think that would have any impact on the Welsh Labour brand? You'd, you'd assume that you would see Welsh Labour MPs in government at a UK level they would would they start to feel like the more powerful partner in that relationship again, especially when you're thinking that Mark Drakeford, who is an incredibly powerful politician in the next few years, is probably going to stand down. Do you, could you ever envisage a situation where the UK party starts to exert a bit more of its authority upon Wales? Uh, it's difficult to know, isn't it? I mean, on the one hand, um, Keir Starmer has kind of kept his nose out of things. Things seem to be going well enough there that he's just happy to not have something on his plate. On the other hand, Keir Starmer, if he's demonstrated anything, it's a willingness to sort of enforce his will over the party to um, either kick people out or see them not re-elected or not listed and sort of, you know, assert power. But the movements within the Labour Party now is to transfer more powers down to the party in Wales. So my view is probably... it's. it's <laughs> To a large extent, people just want to leave Wales alone and let it do its own thing. I mean, what's more upsetting in some sense is uh, an abject refusal to learn anything that ever happens in Wales for elsewhere. It's, I mean, again, I like that's this notion that devolution is meant to be sort of legislative laboratories, that what was tested in one place could be tried elsewhere. Whenever they are picked up, it's very rarely ever noticed, you know, um, plastic bag charges, etc., or smoking bans. They're sort of 
not recognized. So no, I don't think there's any risk uh, from that. If anything, uh, I think that the election of a Keir Starmer government will probably do a huge amount of positive for the Welsh Labour Party, simply because it will help to overcome some of the dangers it's faced uh, more recently, being faced with such an incredibly, almost um, anti-devolution is the wrong word. Uh, again, we're going back to these definitions, but this muscular unionist, unilateralist position, which was particularly enforced under Boris Johnson, but, you know, again, Rishi Sunak's not really had any sort of direct intervention in there, but there's still that kind of enforcing will over Wales and trying to sort of, um, well, we saw this during the pandemic, just very poor breakdown in relations, which put Welsh Labour in a difficult position of constantly having to essentially point to the problems of the constitution of the union as a whole at a time that we were seeing that rise in indie curious politics and uh, the majority of people apparently supporting or becoming indie curious within the Welsh Labour Party. There was a sort of interesting period there in which sort of the logic of Welsh Labour politics, which has become since 2007 in particular, I would argue onwards, a soft nationalist, devo-maximizing, social democratic, or at least let's call it progressive neoliberalism in a social democratic mold. I'm, I'm dancing on pins here, I know. It worked, and it worked, but it kind of works the best when you've got another government in Westminster willing to play ball. It's easy to kind of go, ah, oh, well, we're different to Westminster, we're doing our own thing, when it's safe. Uh, and Keir Starmer will be safe. I also think Keir Starmer being elected is probably, and we've seen this in some of the polls already, is probably likely to quieten a lot of people who were indie curious. It's, it's quite possible they're going to turn out that they were more anti-nationalists and it was something they were latching themselves onto. Um, if you look back to devolution, um, support for devolution in 1997 falls uh, during the campaign. Um, largely, I think the idea is there because a lot of people who were like, we need devolution. You had the election of the Tony Blair government. They were like, oh, Christ, great, Labour's in. We're protected again from sort of Tory dominance. Um, and it's only the truth power of Tony says vote yes, etc. It's kind of reverses a little bit of that. So I think that Keir Starmer being elected probably won't have any major influence. If anything, it might steady the ship in some regards. If you if you do, like myself, see that there were some dangerous elements uh, arising for the party there. It's interesting one, though, because, you know, you look at that 1999 assembly result two years after the election of Blair's government. Part of it's obviously, obviously there's the context surrounding people being annoyed of how the Roger Morgan, how the Michael situation was handled. But it almost felt that people were comfortable voting for someone who wasn't Labour that they, they felt comfortable voting to the left of Labour because worse comes to worse, we've still got a Labour government in the UK. Do you think that there's any potential that a Labour-led government actually could end up having the effect where people feel, oh, well, Welsh Labour, they just run from London again, but at least there's a Labour government at the UK level, so we can vote to their left and not really worry about it. Do you think there's ever a potential for planning to have that sort of platform again from, from a Starmer-led like, UK government? Man, who knows? Uh Possibly. One of the things I think is, is quite telling is how the Green Party's never managed to get its feet in Wales, like never managed to get those sort of those list seats in there. And that's sort of a, a vote from the from the left as well. Obviously, one of the arguments there is because Plaid eats up uh, that space and has a history indeed, obviously going back to the sort of early electoral successes by linking to the green politics. But um, could it could it happen? Maybe. I mean, one of the things which has just been kind of fascinating is I still can't break out of that. 
that particular barrier that I, I'm going to say 10 to 11% or something, right? There's kind of in like elections, they're kind of, they just can't break out of it. You know, the Ann Wood's gone, Adam Price comes in, nothing seems to be shifting there. Could it be the shift uh, at Westminster, which allows for that? Quite possibly. But on the other hand, a Labour Party in Wales, which is able to just sort of kind of talk up the bountifulness of what they're able to do. I don't know. I kind of feel like that dominance of one partyism within the media, within just the way people think about politics is so is so difficult to break through. But then again, I would also point out that it's very unlikely that you're going to continue to see more majority Labour Party governments in Wales, or rather that you're going to get sort of bare minimums, which means you're going to kind of be reliant anyway on other parties. And since the Liberal Democrats apparently just simply cannot get off of the floor again, Plaid Cymru now is the obvious uh, party we're working with. So part of the conversation there really is how much the Plaid want to go back for another one Wales or is stability agreements the way forward? Like what is actually their relationship they want there? There was again that interesting period a, a while back, I can't even remember how many years ago, where there was attempts to force the vote of um, no confidence, which could have seen sort of well, what Labour then went, working with the Tories, working with UKIP, et cetera, right? But again, there's no point playing fancy politics. But if there was ever something, it would have been fascinating to see. It's what would Welsh politics be like if you'd actually had that rainbow coalition? Mm. Completely different. Like, so much of the shape of politics is based upon one partyism. You know, the most uh, electorally successful party in the world, as uh, I think this was the uh, the anniversary year this year. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's so true. But again, that the Liberal Democrats, Plaid Cymru and the Welsh Conservatives at the time were much more similar parties than, Absolutely. than they are now, right? So yeah. the idea of having a, a rainbow coalition now is beyond, I think, the realms of reality, really. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, all parties are uniformly supporting the extension of powers and the referendum. I mean, it's, it's, it's a completely different beast. One of the papers to be written, and it's something I've always wanted to write, and sadly just time gets in the way, is sort of the narrative of true Wales and the sort of devo-skeptic politics. Because it's kind of interesting that the opposition almost gets forced out of party politics into this organization branded in red, sort of old Labour-style politics, which you can feel within some of these conversations here, outside of the, the realm of the, the party politics. Which now, again, you see anti-devolution or devo-skeptic things more linking themselves into sort of UKIP and so forth. One thing I, w- I, w- I would argue, just, you know, for their sins, a lot of the stuff which was argued, this will happen, has happened. The powers have been extended, they said would be extended, the people said they wouldn't be extended. Now, realistically, the majority of people who kind of study um, Welsh politics think they should be uh, extended. But it's kind of something about the way true Wales and others were crazy sort of mad people uh, and pushed out in many ways um i think that's a might be a bit hyperbolic there but some of the way they were treated was sort of very very dismissive um mm-hmm. some of the stuff they said yeah it happened and again people might think it's a good point but uh, it might be good that it happened it needed to happen but uh, they said it was going to happen compare and contrast though to 2007 in which some of the arguments you were hearing at, at the conference etc were catastrophic and clearly didn't happen you know well, um, yeah. So we haven't. I was realizing we've we've talked. We sort of skirted over this. We didn't really get into the sort of nitty gritty of those floor debates. What was some of the, I suppose, some of the the stronger and some of the more flamboyant arguments expressed on the day? Let's say. Well, um, I'll just check out a couple of. I'll literally just throw out some sort of illustrative lines to kind of get it forward. Um, 
the party is being blackmailed and supporting a nationalist agenda. The politics of social justice is in danger of being replaced by the politics of identity. People remember we're socialists, not nationalists. Loads of that constantly being said. Internationalists, not nationalists. Lots of that being said again. Ply Cymru were, was said to have soured their socialism with the politics of nationalism. This idea that if you blend it together, it sort of it curdles socialism. One of the things which came out a lot was actually Labour Party um, uh, speakers from the North Wales having a, a sort of almost attacking comrades in the south so for example one uh, northern clp representative said you know they're not the cuddly group meaning plied you think they are down here in the south claiming that quote in north wales english speaks the second class citizens and saying that we want to stop wales becoming a greater gwynedd again not something you'd probably say in a newspaper right uh, another northwest clp person saying south wales comrades don't seem to recognize the party we're talking about calling plied racist and warning, it's not all right to negotiate for party because only part of it seems racist. So very strong rhetoric here, racist. Other people refer to them as xenophobic. You know, those sorts of uh, rhetoric is going on there. There's people say, you know, saying you've not been listening to us. It's a betrayal. Those sorts of ideas there. You you have uh, people saying the deal will be catastrophic because, quote, Plaid's friends in the media will sort of big this up. We'll be tied to the mast of nationalism, uh, you know, and sent into the rocks. You've got my favorite bit, because I can literally still remember it to this day being there. One of the MPs loudly declaring one Wales to be a Trotskyist plot. And as he said it, there was this great cheer in the room of people like, way! And it was kind of this delighted, ironic, like people kind of like laughing, but cheer. But, you know, some people also, you know, agreeing. And he said, I'm not saying Plaid are trots. Well, some of them probably are, but these are transitional demands and Plaid will take all the glory. And, and saying, you know, if some of you want this, go to it. It's like saying people in the party should go and uh, join Plaid Cymru if this is what they wanted. One of the things you mentioned, Adam Price's uh, role in the background, possibly. It's also worth noting, this is the problem of things being deleted on the internet. Um, Adam Price had written a blog post before this. I remember that. I remember the blog. Uh, I can like visualize in my mind. And it, he talked about one Wales in Gramscian terms as an epochal, not merely conjunctural choice in a war of position by Plaid. And people had printed out copies of Adam Price's blog and put them onto the seats, you know, saying, look, Adam Price lays bare the real truth behind Plaid's deal to wreck our party. And people kept referring to Adam Price from the stand. This will be the greatest victory in pushing us to independence. Uh, compare and contrast that. And first of all, as we were saying, about 75% of the people who spoke there spoke against the deal, despite the fact that there was a clear majority of votes for the deal. So the majority of people who are speaking speak against it, despite the fact the majority of votes are clearly for it, which again is why I think that you've got to understand this is um, a platform for emoting, right? Letting out that anger as a necessary stage to move on. I'm not going to put my psychoanalyst hat on at the moment. No, it but, just, I, I'm going to get yeah. put, my, put my psychoanalyst hat on. on what, what blows my mind again now is that with this, this Adam Price blog about using... Um, a coalition with Labour in order to transition into a state where Wales will sort of Wales and the Labour Party will seemingly come to accept independence is the right thing, whether it's the right thing to do or simply inevitable. Mm -hmm. But he's just been in Clinetley this weekend making a very similar argument to his party conference and making it the core of their political strategy for years coming forward. It's 16 years later. Have, have Plaid Cymru simply in this 16 year period tried tried other stuff and they go now actually the only way that we can ever affect change is by being in government with the Labour Party. Well look this is again going back to sort of the political genius of Welsh Labour in many senses is um, what you get with One Wales is 
before One Wales, but it's sort of like we say, it's sort of it's it's post this period. It's what I've referred to um, as the Welshminster Consensus because I'm trying to coin a term that people will have to cite me and quote me, right? The Welshminster Consensus, it's like the Westminster Consensus. What I mean by that is there was for a period, and it's broken down, you know, Artie Davis and sort of like the Tories have moved away from it now, but there was that period of soft nationalist, devo-maximizing, sort of broadly social democratic or progressive neoliberal politics in Wales. But what you see for Welsh Labour is they essentially drove their tanks onto Plaid's lawn. They adopted full-heartedly the rhetoric and language of, of Welshness, Welsh identity, the symbols, changing the logo so that it was it had the dragon's tail in it, um, all these sort of minor sort of elements, but also uh, not being afraid of the language. Now, that's not saying the language policy has been fantastic or anything like, but it's still about uh, articulating a comfort with it. Clyde is kind of get forced off because Welsh Labour offer what Slavoj Žižek uh, would refer to as a uh, a chocolate laxative or a decaffeinated uh, coffee, which is to say the product about the nasty bit, right? It's like you can have your uh, you can have your thing you want, but without the bad bit. So you can have Welsh nationalist politics and culture and feel happy, but none of that scary independence, right? Ooh. And Clyde found it really difficult because. Welsh Labour hegemonizes the space. They wear the clothes so much that where do you find your space within that? And everybody ends up juggling themselves, uh, trying to find space around Welsh Labour because that's the dominance of the party in Wales. So Clyde are stuck. And, and this isn't just now. I mean, I remember Leanne Wood doing um, interviews, uh, 2011, 2012, where she's talking about, look, Welsh, the Welsh nationalist movement's been quite, quite successful in Wales. It's just, it's sort of, being put in place by the Labour government. There's an article in The Guardian. If you go and Google back, maybe can people find it? But it's a great quote. She's like, a lot of stuff's being done. It's just being done through the Welsh Labour government, which you could argue is through the influence there. But that's how you, that's how Welsh Labour managed to sort of hegemonise its politics. I mean, one of the dangers for the party there becomes how far can you stretch that elastic, um, which we kind of maybe saw some tensions around uh, the pandemic and the problems of that uh, Tory government and how it was acting. So I think it's sort of, where is their space? I mean, again, we're, we're looking at electoral reform on the horizon. Mm -hmm. You know, it's likely that Plaid and Labour will have to work together, collaborate in government for the foreseeable future. Would it seem to you as almost that they're sort of ceasing to exist as individual entities, that no matter whether you vote red or green, you'll probably get some sort of red-green mix, probably with Labour as the, the head? of the dragon but that's essentially what you'll end up with no matter what who votes for who really because that's eventually what's gonna happen that's a difficult question simply because while i think there is a huge amount of crossover within lots of the policy um and even on the key areas of division which mainly will be sort of constitutional i think that the boundaries aren't quite as clear as they once were and in fact the future might muddied them a little bit forward. I'm looking well into the future, maybe. But that culture within the parties is still very, very different, even with the sort of the dominance, which we call it the Welsh wing, whatever you want to call it. Like, so I'm not in the party now, but I was when I wrote the paper and I was born and bred in uh, the party. And there is a very strong culture of the Labour Party which ties itself into long traditions, obviously deeply embedded within the labor movement, stories which tie itself into the British state as well. That isn't there with Implied Cymru. 
Um, there are elements, I'm not saying there aren't elements of applied working with the labor movement as well, but it's a very different narrative, I would argue. And therefore, there's always going to be a set. I, I, I wouldn't want to say it's going to become one element simply because I do think they they think and they feel very differently, even where they do share some some sort of policy overlap. On the other hand, the extent to which there is a huge amount of space for an alternative form of policy, to an extent right now, it does feel like Clyde's role might be to shift things from the left into sort of areas where maybe elements of the left of the Welsh Labour Party might also want elements to be shifting. But then again, Plaid Cymru is, I would argue, shifted itself further to the, the right more recently as well than where it used to be. So I would not want to put any cards on the table with your metaphor of a, a red-green dra- with a dragon's head, etc. As, as beautiful it is. But the dominant form of politics here is that kind of Welshminster consensus, right? The Tory party fall outside of it. But even below the leadership of the Tory party, there's still some of that Nick Borney feeling, if I can put it that way, within that party. And I'm not sure where it'll shift in the future. Just as a sort of political scientist, I sort of wanted to get your your assessment of the cooperation agreement between the Welsh government and Plaid Cymru. The structure of this deal seems to lend itself more to Borgen than Bogdanor, doesn't it, really, if you think about it in that sort of way? Do you th- and then there's some people who've said that it's led to this weird situation where Plaid Cymru have all the power, but not really any of the responsibility. The, the flip side of that is that, yeah, it, it's sort of have your cake and eat it. But on the other hand is you're, you're, you're playing sort of the critic to um, bills, which eventually you end up supporting anyway. My reading of it is, I do, I, I, this is part of the legacy of, of 2007, of the One Wales Agreement, which sees large amounts of things Plaid wanted pushed through earlier than they would have been otherwise. But then they take um, a shellacking at the next election. And there's that sort of that fear of what happens to minority parties. And what this agreement does is it, to an extent, is meant to create exactly that wiggle room. Like you say, give us the power without the responsibility. But there's also kind of an ineffectualness to it, which is you're still propping up the government. And to what extent are you just sort of like covering over this? I I don't know. With great power comes great responsibility, as um, Ben Parker told Peter Parker but if you've got no responsibility, how much power do you have? And it's sort of, I'm not saying they don't have any responsibility, but you get to have the conversation, but you still end up sort of supporting the government. So mm. who's actually going to win out of this, especially when it comes to being voted for eventually? How many people realistically have any, con- how many people realistically know that there's a stability agreement with Plaid Cymru? And how many people go, oh, wow, I guess Welsh Labour running stuff as ever. So the, the way Plaid Cymru phrased this is this is, co-opposition right mm-hmm. is that they can back stuff they want to back mm-hmm. but then also hold the welsh government to account and obviously these are professional politicians they can take you know they can take the rough mm-hmm. but also there are limits surely to how much you can criticize a party with which you are cooperating and trying to work together to pass legislation before before this sort of relationship starts to become unworkable right yeah, and I thought that was a point which is made really well, actually, in your last podcast with um, Tom Gifford, MS, where he talked about that kind of tension for Plaid, the fact that kind of you're trying to have it both ways, but you end up uh, sort of voting for the stuff anyway. And he, his view is, was that it's, it's sort of falling apart, and I think there's a lot to that. So obviously, as we look to the future, 
Mark Drakeford has announced that he'll be standing down before the next Senate election. We spoke to an MS recently who said Labour work best when it operates in that sort of red-green space. Do you think the next Welsh Labour leader will need to occupy that space as well to ensure that Welsh Labour remains successful? I think that's the future, um, the continued future for Welsh Labour. I mean, regardless of, of whether it's for the best, uh, it's certainly been successful here, hitherto, but I just think that's where the entire balance of power is within the party. There, you know, there are different shades of this now between different potential candidates, but there's there's no distinction between, say, an Alan Michael and a Rodri Morgan style, which tells you about the legacy, right? Or I don't even think there's the distinction between sort of Hugh Lewis versus Carwin Jones, where again you sort of you could feel that sort of one person talking up a more sort of shall we call it Bevanite rhetoric, which is meant to symbolize sort of a unionist position. I, I feel like that that sort of stance is probably not going to be as loud as it once would have been. So there'll be different sort of flavors, but I don't think there's going to be any major distinction there. That's just not where the party is now. If there was to be a sort of existential shift in the party, it probably would have to come around with some sort of catastrophe. It would have to be, well, let's say the Tories win another election. That might sort of shake things up if if sort of, and by win another election, I mean at Westminster, because it might actually lead to some of the tensions uh, within Wales becoming enhanced. And whether we see whether sort of similar rises in support for uh, India curious politics. But I... I do think it would actually have to be an existential uh, dilemma, such as losing power from the Senate, which could lead to uh, any such shift. And I don't see any sign that we're not going to have a majority, well, a Labour-led government in Cardiff anytime soon. Dr. Diamond, thank you very much. If people want to hear more from you on Twitter, where can they go? Uh, at David underscore S underscore Moon. And if anyone would like to read Dai's fantastic articles about the One Wales conference, they can find the links in the show notes of today's episode. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard this evening, please don't forget to find Hereith on all the socials at Pod. You can go to our website, www.walespolitics.com. And thank you very much for supporting us with your ears. But if you would like to do so with your wallet, you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash Pod. Thank you for listening to Hereith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.